we come to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to, you'll notice we'll read verses 1 to 6 and 16 through 18. And so this is the word of the Lord. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received the reward in full, but when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So last week, um, I, I visited the Omaha Zoo. Um, I heard little woos. And uh, confessions, zoos make me a little uncomfortable. I know that they have those little placards in front of the ex exhibits that say that these anim animals have been like rescued or they've landed in the zoo because of some sort of tragedy or something like that. But still, there's like, I don't know, suspicion about animals and cages. But my like zoo, I don't know, questioning aside, my like discomfort about zoos aside, uh, there, there I was in Omaha fawning over the exotics with my brother-in-law and his two-year-old little boy and our little crew, and we were there look, looking at all these things. It was, uh, it was curiously lovely. And, and then uh, one of the most interesting things happened. It was like a modern-day exhibition, if you will. So and this is the scene. We're outside of the primate portion. If you know the zoo or you have it downloaded into your mental maps, then we are there. And outside of the primate portion, there are statues of gorillas and other primates of such. Uh, and Griffin, seeing these, um, these are less threatening than the real gorillas. We actually saw there was a gorilla that stood up, pounded the glass, and then ran away. And he was like, ah. So we exit, and there's gorillas that won't stand up, which would be terrifying if they did, but they didn't. And so Griffin sees them, and we start making our way over to these little statue gorillas, which are intended, I'm thinking, to be played on. And as we go there, these three teenage girls kind of trot over to the gorillas. One, like, jumps on top, kind of like side saddle, and then makes a pose, a smile, jumps off, goes and looks at the picture, and then it's like rinse and repeat. And so Griffin and I are just standing there, and we're like, okay. And we're standing there, and we're looking, and they're still doing it. Eventually, we just walk away, um, because that, that was quite this odd moment. Now, my guess is you've either seen this or you've done it. Uh, maybe not with, like, the gorillas, but you've done the thing where you, like, take a picture, you look at the picture, you go, okay, no, 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 let's redo this. We can do better than this. Or, like, maybe not everyone was in it to give the benefit of the doubt. But you take the picture, you throw the filter on the picture, you write a cute little caption that takes you 25 minutes to curate, and then you tag, like, 18 people, you post that thing. 
<sighs> and there it is. Now, I, I could be wrong, and what Griffin and I witnessed was like the renaissance of scrapbooking, and these girls were like, they were taking these pictures for the purpose of tactile pleasure, but my guess is, is that there was like a snap streak on the line, or Instagram was calling, something like that, and I'm not throwing shade at their actions there, they've been shaped by a world that is saturated in, in social media, so my, my guess is though, if those pictures were destined for a platform, then what Griffin and I witnessed is what the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt would call public performance. So um, Jonathan Haidt, if, if you've Coddling of the American Mind or The Righteous Mind, these are fantastic books. If, uh, I would recommend listening to them because why read when you can listen? Um, that's, that's a bad joke. Anyway, read, Carrie, Carrie, read, read away. Um, I, guess, I guess that's right, yeah. So John, Jonathan Haidt, public performance. And so this is, public performance is what it sounds like. Uh, try thinking about public performance like a boomerang. Now, I don't know the last time you threw a boomerang, but the principle of a boomerang is that you throw it out there into the world, and that, that thing will come back to you. So you take this picture, you tag it up right, you fill the filter on, and you throw it out in the world, and it comes back having garnered likes and comments, etc. Are you getting this, public performance? Okay. Public performance is not reserved for social media. We do public performance in interpersonal relationships. You see public performance with businesses. If you knew about it, you, there's actually public performance in churches. I know, this is crazy. This is crazy. And I'm, I'm saying it as one who's guilty of this. Uh, and, and like much of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words here, they call us to a counter-practice, a, a practice that is contrary to the common practice. So here are Jesus' words again in verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So hear those first words again. Be careful. This statement, verse 1, kind of governs the verses that we read today, verses 1 to 6 and 16 to 18. And some scholars would say the whole passage, verse 1 to 18. But those words, be careful, watch out, pay attention, be careful to practice your righteousness in order to be seen by others. That warning governs this passage. In other words, Jesus is warning his would-be disciples to pay attention to the type of disciplines that they participate in because their devotion can easily be hijacked by public performance, something that can creep in, and then that act is no longer devoted to their Father in heaven. Rather, that act like a boomerang comes back for their good. And so Jesus' words, as they come to us, we just have to reckon with it, that we are, we are in a different social location, but there's some similarities. When Jesus' words come to this, they come to a people whose hearts are turned inward. The church fathers call this incurvatus. It's this inward turn of our desires and our loves back unto ourselves. And so Jesus' words, they come to us who can, uh, we, sometimes this is like navel gazing or whatever, but like this is the, the inward turn of the heart. Jesus' words call us out and they call us up. They call us out of public performance and up to private practice. Out of public performance and into practice. And I just want us to linger in this, in this warning with, uh, by reviewing three words. Because if this is the warning that's going to govern our passage, I think we have to have our minds kind of situated here. So three words, righteousness, reward, and practice. So we'll just start with the first. Um, the, the warning is, be careful not to practice your righteousness. 
So if you've been around uh, churchianity for some time, my guess is that when you hear righteousness, it comes with some stuff. And by stuff, I mean it comes with some technical slash theological baggage. So you hear righteousness, and maybe a word that comes to your mind is like imputed. You're like, oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Or maybe you're like, I have no idea what, what you're talking about. Well, let me just say, there is a caricature of righteousness that it is this theological aspect, this dom domain or reality where we are placed in through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you are unrighteous apart from Christ, and then you're righteous. And so if, if this is a, a, an understanding that you have, then, then what we need to do is we need to do some work here with what Jesus is bringing us because righteousness is a little bit different as Jesus is talking about it. And we know this because in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes, Jesus has already talked about righteousness. And righteousness, when Jesus talks about it, and it's in scope here, is more akin to social justice than like personal justification. This, this language of performing your righteousness is almost this idea of doing social justice. I, I love how Dr. Esau Macaulay, he unpacks this, and he unpacks this from the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is a, a bit of a lengthy quote uh, from Dr. Macaulay, but I think the juice is worth the squeeze. So just tuck in right here. It's going to be behind me. And uh, li listen to this, because he's talking about particularly this word righteousness, and he uses the word justice. Hungering and thirsting for justice or righteousness is nothing less than continue, the continued longing for God to come and set things right. And we could stop right there, but he gives us this gift and goes on. It, that is this righteousness, is a vision of the just society established by God that does not waver in the face of evidence to the contrary. Mourning is not enough. We must have a vision for something different. Justice or righteousness is that difference. I just want to pause right there. This feels like a poignant moment to call this out. Mourning is appropriate. So just north of us, 30-ish minutes in Ames, there was a shooting that took the life of two people, three people. And, and it's like the reality is, is mourning is needed, but mourning alone is not the justice we desire. Mourning is a place for us to give vent to the deep hurt that we feel. And like a third of the Psalms are lament Psalms. There's actually a voice in the biblical witness that lets us release the cry of pain. But it is not enough. We need to go further. This is why we continue. Jesus calls for the reconfiguration of our imagination in which we realize that the options presented to us by the world are not all that there is. There remains a better way, and that better way is the kingdom of God. Jesus wants us to see that his kingdom is something that is possible. Here, okay, gateway, just collectively. The kingdom of God is actually possible. That's why we're actually here is to host the presence of Jesus, to receive the healing from the Holy Spirit, and then to begin to embody the type of life that characterizes the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace. So this is possible, at least as a foretaste. So I'm just going to, this might, I don't know, be wrong, but if a preacher comes up or a person comes up or like an influencer comes up on the social medias and they say that like all of the blessings can happen now, they've just not wrestled, in my opinion, with the, like the reality of sin, that it is still something that we're feeling the pangs of. So we get a foretaste of, a com of the kingdom of God through a community of justice, but we are still waiting for its consummation. To hunger for justice or righteousness is to hope that the things that cause us to mourn will not get the last word. 
So righteousness, righteousness or justice that's motivated by Jesus, it looks like the righteousness that Jesus put on, the stuff that he actually wore in his life. And what this, what this means for us is righteousness is relational, not just like a, on a vertical axis, not just I have been deemed righteous between God. It actually is something that moves through me to my neighbor. Righteousness is relational. And you see this with Jesus, like you see this movement of Jesus toward people who he ought not move toward. And for Jesus, um, this movement towards your neighbor that's motivated by righteousness or justice, this is the reward. This might sound odd. Um, When I start talking about rewards in the Bible, does it make you feel as uncomfortable as it makes me feel? Okay. This is normal to feel that discomfort. Um, in, this, in the space that I was like, I don't know, like a pretty robust Calvinist church I cut my teeth on, and so there was this fear of like uh, works righteousness. Do not work for your salvation. The problem is Paul, um, from whom like that idea is driven, will also say work out your salvation in fear and trembling. So Jesus is now going to talk to reward. So we're to our second word, reward. Like the, the act of moving towards your neighbor, that is the location of the reward. And, and I don't think that the reward language in the Gospels should throw us off. It should get our attention that there is something to be had when we participate in this way of living. So just, just hear this. There are tangible benefits to participating in righteousness. And you can be a recipient of those tangible benefits. I go on. Your boy Clive Staples helps us make sense of this. That's C.S. Lewis because he lives in this tension of reward. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud plies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, there is... There is a temptation to receive this reward that is an immediate feedback when when what Jesus has on offer is something that is infinitely desirable. So congratulations from ourselves or congratulations from others. That is, I think, the mud pie in this illustration. It is the cheap reward compared to what's on offer with Jesus. And and this might sound silly, um, but it's his presence. It's like the tangible, manifest presence of Jesus that is available in this type of movement toward our neighbor. See, later in in the gospel, the same gospel, the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, if you want, you can flip over there. This is Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40. Jesus has this staggering story to make the point that you encounter his manifest presence when you are enacting social justice with your neighbor, when you're demonstrating your righteousness in this way. This is Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. This is like this vision of the new heavens and new earth, this like judgment scene. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. 
then the righteous, those who were just told all of these things, will answer Jesus and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and close you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king, that is King Jesus, will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Um, this, some of you might not know this, there are moments in my life when I can be invigorated by public spaces. <laughs> Namely, if there's lots of people, those can, that will lead to me being energized. For some of you, that's the exact opposite. You go into public spaces slash work, and you're, like, you come home at the end of the day, and you're like, uh, people. I go home, and I'm like, yes, let's do this. Here, here's my point. I can easily want this space, using language of hosting the presence of Jesus, I can easily want this chase, that the gathered people on a Sunday to be something sensational, to make me feel the good feelings. Now, I think there's something in this um, that we ought to expect that the Spirit of God is like better than a Mumford and Sons concert. Like there ought to be something better than going and seeing Coldplay or I don't know, like Drake. I don't, like there, got, there has to be something better with the Spirit of God than the entertainment of the world. There just needs to be. And sometimes um, I desire a good thing for the wrong reasons. I like want this to be a place where I encounter the spirit, but sometimes it's just because I want to get like hyped and that's maybe temperamental. Uh, there is something here that Jesus is saying, that there is something more beautiful when you enact social justice with your neighbor than in the most invigorated, spirit-filled, slain in the spirit gathering. Because I am telling you, I am here among the hurting. This, um, this passage was really annoying for this reason. Because Jesus is saying, I actually can be found if you want to find me. There is a reward to be had, namely my presence, if you just go to those places. Karen has been faithfully serving with Joppa since, like, Nam. She's been there the whole time. Karen has been, that's a joke, but, but Karen consistently invites us and challenges us to move into those spaces. We need, you know what the world says we don't need Karens? I say we need the Karen. So... <laughs> So that was reward, here's practice. And practice is where we're gonna spend the rest of our time. I just want us to note the assumption that's up and running for Jesus. The assumption is this, that righteousness is a public good, but righteousness is not a public performance. This is kind of like the point that I'm trying to make. Righteousness is a public good, those are italicized in my note, the, the is, it is a public good, but it is not a public performance. So the warning here feels so stern because performing righteousness, that is treating righteousness as a boomerang that will come back for my own good, it perverts the justice at personal cost. So Jesus is actually concerned for the people to lose their reward because they're making mud pies. He wants them to have that beautiful place of his presence. And so we're going to make this clear just by working through our passage and the remainder of our time. Check this out. This is all under the umbrella of practice. Jesus is going to pick up three dominant practices in the life of the religious community of his day. It is going to be almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. If you map that on to the church today, it'd be like church attendance, prayer, and I don't know, Bible reading or something like that. For Jesus's day, it is almsgiving, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. So you ready? Here are the practices uh, circa the first century. Jesus has this line, when you give to the needy, it's right there in verse 2, do not announce it with trumpets. 
So when we read that line in, in the NIV, giving to the needy, the, word, the, the term that we're reading is this Greek term, elemousene. Give this a try because it's, it's, it's good. Elemousene. I kind of want to say it like I'm Italian. I don't know if this is elemousene. Um, so this is giving to the needy. And this has this idea um, that is bigger than just an act of generosity. It's not just giving spare change to someone as you drive by or writing a check, both of which are beautiful things to do. Ele Musene encompasses something far more than a single act. Ele Musene is about the orientation of our time and our energy and our finances and our margin. So if you have ever said... I can't believe I gave my time to that, or I can't believe I wasted my time. Ele Musene is something that governs over that aspect of your life as well. And I, I don't think, just to be clear, and I could, again, I could be wrong about this. Go and, and research this, I suppose, and, and send feedback. I don't think Jesus is making a case for altruism. Altruism is where we do a good thing for the inherent goodness of the thing. So altruism is perhaps a motivation to act for the good that's inherent in the action. Jesus is, remember, talking about that there's an actual reward to be had in enacting righteousness and practicing social justice. And this is why I think this. We are like a garden hose. So you, someone says, hey, well, you know, how was your weekend? Oh, I'm like a, I'm like a garden hose is what you'll say. I, I learned this at church. Let me unpack this. Um, this is why I think Jesus is not making a case for altruism is because if you've ever used a garden hose, you're aware that the purpose of a garden hose is to extend the source of, like, from the tap to the yard. Um, right now I'm experiencing this in real time. We have some, some patchy spots, and because I'm a, a white middle-class man living in a pseudo-suburban area, I am taking care of my lawn and so I do it with vigor and tenacity. And so I get my little rake and I till up that soil. Karen, you'd be proud of me. I'm giving even distribution of the seed. I'm putting some hay over the top. Uh, and, and so I'm doing all these things. And then I get my hose and I bring that thing out because I need the source to get to the seed. I actually need it to extend the life because the life is going to be had through the hose. It's going to be a conduit for that. And if you've set out to use your hose and yet you like go around a corner or a piece of furniture and there's a kink in the hose, what happens? Now we're seeing who's paying attention. What? There's nothing. Maybe you get a dribble. Yeah? And you're like, oh no, what's going on? So there's a kink in the hose. God wants his love and his righteousness and this Jesus-shaped justice to flow through you and me. He wants us to be conduits and recipients of his life. This is now where the illustration of us as hoses breaks down because um, like you want the water to get through the hose to the ground and you're like, so does the ground get transferred? Just, just go with me on this little, little analogy. It worked when I was writing it and I'm, I, don't, I hope it still does. We want, God actually has an idea that we would be the people who would be transformed to carry his love and grace through this particular means. And as our neighbors near and far encounter this Jesus-shaped justice through us, does it bear witness to the hose? No. No, like the, the, when Jesus-shaped justice is enacted with our neighbors, it actually bears witness to a source. Just as the hose is not the source, the hose is just carrying the goodness that brings the life, so we are a hose. 
But the problem with this is that there can be a kink, and the human kink is to want to be the source. Like, we actually want to be recognized as the place from which and from where life flows. We want the approval and the affirmation. And maybe this is just me preaching to me. That's often the case. I want the approval and the affirmation and the congratulations of myself and from you. And that is a kink that stops up the flow. By the way, the purpose of preaching the Bible is always to motivate us to some end. It is that the word of God through the spirit of God would do some work in our inner woman or our inner man, that it would move us to a place. Perhaps that place is like repentance or it's gladness or it's joy or it's something else. Let me tell you where this moved me. This moved me to like the generosity liturgy. (laughs) This might sound so silly, but... um, Every week we read this thing to remind ourselves that everything we have and am is pure gift. Like I am just, I'm just a conduit. I just get to participate in this thing, which means that I get to have a different posture. Like I actually don't need the congratulations because it's, and it's not like this false humility like, oh, it was just the Lord. Like when someone says thank you for something, you can say, you're welcome. I worked really hard on that. And if they want to know more, you can say more. But like we get to participate in this thing. And Jesus doesn't just stop here. He he wants the kinks out, but he does not want us to forfeit God's offer. So he goes into this next thing of prayer. And we're going to expand more on this next week with the Lord's Prayer, but this is where we see it in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. See, there's this uh, staggering line on the lips of Jesus in Matthew uh, later on. And it goes like this. My house will be called a house of prayer. Jesus says this in the temple. He says this in the temple courts. This this moment is like what was ringing in my ears. My house will be called a house of prayer. With Jesus, there is no doubt that prayer is, is, is like, is intimacy with God. Prayer is central to the life of Jesus. I was one time going on a car ride with a church leader and he was uh, talking about, like, how do you see yourself in the life of the church? He had recently read Eugene Peterson's, like, b- work on the pastor. And I'm like, oh, cool. I've never read that. Tell me about it. He's talking about himself. He, but, but then he, he goes on and he says, but I just don't like to pray. And I, I thought, well, what do you mean you don't like to pray? He said, I, I don't know. It just it seems like there's something I can be doing. I'm like, well, the, the, right? Like prayer. <laughs> because... Um, if we don't, if we're not attached to the source, what do we expect that like, I don't know, through, I, I don't know science, like osmosis, like that the, that the hose is just going to suck the moisture out of the air? No, like you actually have to be attached to the source. And so Jesus says that central to the life of God is prayer. Regularly, Jesus escapes from the crowds to go and pray. He hides from his disciples to go and pray. Jesus is constantly moving away to the hidden place to pray. I, I, I would be curious to know, there's a, there's a church out west called Bridgetown, and they're going through these, this little thing of people are sending in pictures of their hidden places. And I, I saw this picture. They're like curating a space where you can see these. And I saw this picture of a person's closet And it was like, I'm like brought to tears by it. This picture on the internet. 
And, and they have, they have like the names of people and then they have like the character of God written on a board and just a chair. It's this austere, it's not sexy, it's nothing, but it is so beautiful because it is, it, it is like, that is the source. Now, I don't know who this person is, I don't know their character, but I, what I can tell from that picture is that they know the source and they want that. They want the power of God there. And what Jesus' warning brings to us here is that like the boomerang, these prayers are not going out for the good of their neighbor. It's actually coming back as a source of their own affirmation and the boost of their ego. So Jesus' words come to sever that because prayer has a different rhythm. In other words, he starts talking about hypocrites. You see, Jesus down the road had some neighbors who uh, were, would wear masks and they would enact plays. These people were called hypocrites. These, these play actors. So it's, some people guess that, that Jesus actually brings the idea of hypocrisy into the modern English language, like through this, that we get our idea of hypocrisy. By the way, show of hands, who likes hypocrites? It's going to be nobody, right? Because it's like you're doing a thing that's not real. You're not, there's no substance to the thing. It's just form. There's no substance. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't play around at prayer. You know, you know what? If you're going to pray, you should just get away. Better, better yet, just go shut yourself in the closet, which is, by the way, like a stall where they would keep an animal in the house. Just go there. Then, then in that place, your father who sees you, well, well that's where the prayer is going to happen. By the way, Jesus is using this really, like, I don't know, almost burlesque style language, over the top and ridiculous. But the point stands here that if you want to pursue a life of prayer to attach to the source, then it is not in the public spaces. So does that mean we can't pray in public? (laughs) No, because Jesus is talking about the interior motivations. If we're throwing these prayers out like a boomerang, then yes, the answer is probably refrain. Change your character, like go into a place and allow Jesus to reshape your character. Because this prayer, it is about intimacy with the divine, not your performance in prayer. See, ultimately, this uh, critique about prayer, it's, it's not really about, like, technique or postures or timing or locations or anything like this. This is a call to true devotion, which turns us then to this last place of fasting. Fasting may not be something that we do very often, and yet, nevertheless, I think it helps to get at this aspect of religious life that Jesus is engaging. And he says this, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces. It'd be likely this is a, a context where religious people are most recognized as men, and they would like disfigure their beards and put dirt on themselves, and they would make themselves look disheveled in order to be recognized as more religious, more holy. Jesus says the opposite. Make yourself up. Look the best you can because this is about this internal devotion. Ultimately, Jesus goes on in each of these religious, these aspects of religious life of almsgiving and prayer and fasting in the same way. He calls for a shift from public piety that is driven by the desire for human approval. So he calls for a shift from that to receiving the divine reward, which is found with the Father in the hidden place. So if you want to know what the reward of the Christian life looks like, it looks like like utter privacy. It's like cultivating the life of righteousness in private. So if you want to know what the invitation in the forthcoming weeks, months, and God willing years in this local church will be like, it is a robust life, a hidden life before God that manifests itself in the love of your neighbor. That like 
I don't know of a more compelling vision because right now, if we try and go out and like quote Bible verses to our neighbors, that might do more harm than good. But if we love them in the name of Jesus with no agenda for them, irrespective of their religious or faith affiliation, but we love them like we want to be loved because we experience the love of the divine in the secret place, my goodness, that looks like a community formed by love. That's the one that I want to be a part of. And right now, this is where we're going to practice saying amen, amen, yes, this is affirmation, it's a there we go. Okay. How do we close this? Right? Because this is pretty straightforward. A warning against public piety, a move toward private devotion. Okay. Well, you see, um, what's clear is that we can want to practice good things for wrong reasons. And we can actually participate in good things for wrong motivations. And that perhaps is the darkest blackness that we can roam around in because in that space we pretend that we can see, but in fact we are blind to the reality of righteousness. See, Jesus has these words that are like light piercing the darkness. But if you say that you can see, but you're blind, you're lying. And I think there's a picture that captures this reality more than anything. And it's this picture here. Now, we can't really see that that well, so I'm going to do something. This is Rembrandt's prodigal son. And I don't, I don't know what you notice first in this, but if the, if the light does the work in this, I'm not an art critic, I know jack squat about this stuff, this is just a stunning image for I think what it looks like to seek the Father in the hidden place. The light is like shining on the Father's face and the Son is held in the bosom of the Father and you notice there are bystanders here. It's like you have, the, you have the elder brother here. If you don't know this story, the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son of Luke 15, it is beautiful because the father is embracing the one who has disdained his name. In fact, in the story, the father is seeking, prowling the horizon for the incoming one for you and for me. But what you notice is even above the, on the father's right shoulder, as you see it in the orientation of, of the painting here, there are faces in the background. Go up and look at this. There's, there's multiple faces that are hidden in the backdrop. And the point is, is that I don't know if we can encounter the righteousness of, of Jesus, if we can live out of that place of the source, if we are inclined to receive the praise of the crowds and not the embrace of the father. The life that we may actually desire is to be held in the embrace of the God who Jesus calls Father. And it comes where then the person who is in rags is given a robe and a ring and a feast. This is the celebration we have. This is the type of celebration we want for our neighbor, not just for ourselves. So what do we actually do? Like, I think we begin to reimagine what it looks like for our characters to be formed. And if we, if we find that there's a temptation to make a public performance out of whatever the righteousness, whether that's on the social media, like, like withhold from that. Disclose it to people you trust. And then withhold from that. Like, and next week, we're going to start moving into this more around the area of prayer. But this is the, this is the thing. There is grace with Jesus. Jesus. 